everyone, and welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. Normally, I try to say something clever here at the beginning before the promo music, but I've been told that I'm terrible at it by my co-host today, so I'm just going to let him say something funny instead once he recovers. <laughs> hey, everybody. I'm Mark Reith, and we talk about money. That's not clever. That's so clever. Oh my God. It's accurate. I have Mark Reith on the show here with me today because John Maxfield is on vacation. Mm. This week, we've decided to bring you some super hard-hitting financial news in preparation for earnings season. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we start with one of our lighter topics, which is who won the Nobel Prize in Economics? <sighs> Close one. I, I was really <laughs> afraid that they were going to give it to that Blundell fella from UCL. Really glad I went to Deaton. I, all my money was... My heart was on Deaton from the get-go. But my head said Blundell after he got like all of those citations and all the academic papers over the last year or so. Really glad Angus Deaton pulled it out. Yeah, Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Angus Deaton's work? I would love to. So, uh, <laughs> Angus Deaton is an economist. He's uh, over at Princeton right now. He graduated from Cambridge a little while back. Uh, he... I'll start from the top, I guess. Most of the time, to measure poverty, you survey a population with the usual economic factors, income, spending, etc. You tally it all up, uh, and then you make policy decisions or decide how much foreign aid to provide based on that data. Uh, so if an area's median income is below their respective poverty level, maybe you shouldn't put a tax on food, or maybe you should send a little bit more you know, foreign aid. Uh, Deaton went with a different direction. Instead of focusing on large groups of data uh, for policymaking, he drilled down on individual household spending, which, and I know this is already probably sounding boring to some people, but it's actually really important because uh, he, he, it changes the way development economics looks. Uh, from it, it goes from a theoretical field to an actual uh, empirical field that you can make changes using his information. Uh, and so I'm going to quote the Academy right here. Uh, well, if, for instance, a government decides to change the value-added tax on food, you can, through Deaton's research, see how that affects consumption and what impact it would have on food and other goods. So, in other words, it's not just some broad look at a large population. It's a drilled-down, household-by-household look on who can afford to eat, which is a very important thing. I don't know if you know that, Gabby. It is. It is very important. I really like eating. Um, No, in all seriousness, though, Deaton really (laughs) did manage to link microeconomics and macroeconomics in a new and novel way. So, this is very exciting for him. Congratulations, Angus Deaton. Angus Deaton, everybody. All right, so moving on to more serious news, Mm. uh, alien abduction insurance. Thoughts? (laughs) Okay, so we could go deep here. We could talk about the Drake equation, Carl Sagan's work, the Fermi paradox, as I'm sure you're aware. It's some pretty hard-hitting information. (laughs) Basically, the idea here is that there are some companies out there that allow you to insure yourself against alien abductions, which... At first, you hear that, and I think a lot of people roll their eyes. But you've got to remember, Jennifer Lopez insured her butt. Bruce Springsteen insured his voice. People don't roll their eyes at those things. I've insured my house against burning down. I don't think it's going to burn down, but I've insured against it. I don't think I'm going to be abducted by aliens. But maybe I should insure against it for a pretty nominal fee. I think it's only, what, $155 a year? That... More than that's reasonable. That's a steal. It's a steal and a deal. As the, long as you can prove that's the problem that you've been abducted by aliens 
recently. Which I don't know <laughs> if you're allowed to take selfies on the mothership with the Hive Queen, or I don't know if you're allowed to bring the probe back with you. Uh, it's got to be difficult to actually prove that you were abducted by aliens. If you can, though, what's the payout on this thing again? Uh, it is the company pays the claimant $1 per year until their death or for one million years, whichever comes first, which I really like. I, I, I think I can guess which one's going to come first. There's also insurance uh, against alien impregnation. Uh, men are also able to get this insurance because who knows what the capabilities that is so true. of aliens are. I don't are. know if you've watched Star Trek. That happened a bunch of times in Star Trek. <laughs> Hard-hitting financial information. <laughs> um, just... Just for the record, okay, mm. so I went to go see if I could purchase some alien abduction insurance because I was curious. Could not actually find a web presence for any company that has it, but they could have just all been abducted by aliens. Maybe someone out there <laughs> is trying to silence the truth. The men in black are coming. Watch out. Yeah, well, if you, if you would like to try, I believe they're called Goodfellow, Rebecca, Ingrams, and Person. I'm Grim. Not, I'm not kidding. Good. Um, they're, grip. they're London grip. grip. That's exactly right. Yeah. Grip. We're all about the acronyms today. So, um, at the Motley Fool, we're all about long-term investing, and the validity of this approach was tested by a British newspaper. Mm. Uh, they pitted seasoned stock-picking professionals against some students and a cat. Oh. And the cat won. Oh. By, like, a lot. I, you know, I heard about the story. <laughs> uh, I presumed we are going to talk about it. This story must be catnip for you. You know, <laughs> I, I know you find this really amusing, but uh, no. Was that uh, supposed to be a meow? That was a terrible that was a meow. Mew. Mew. Kittens no. go mew. Kittens do not mew, they meow. Moving right along. Uh, so the story is, is a Greek letter. as you <laughs> said, uh, somebody had the great idea of setting up professionals against students against a cat for stock picking for a year. The cat pretty much kicked their butts. Uh, he, he just he clawed his way to the top of the pile. Uh, it's, he's really the cat's meow. It's incredible what he was able to do. Uh, I, can, I can see why people would read this story and get kind of ticked off. There are a lot of folks out there who have tried to invest on their own and maybe gotten burned by the market, and they just throw up their hands and say, screw it, I'm just going to give my money to a broker, or I'm just going to invest in a fund. Or uh, give it to a cat. Or give it to a cat. Well, then, then they see this and go, what? the cat can beat me. What the heck? Uh, I, I, I don't like that. I don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis, which this is kind of corollary to that. Uh, I believe that in Adam Smith and John Maynard Keyes, when it's a lot more behaviorally focused, uh, choosing the right stocks. So I don't, I don't think this cat that's really going to beat you. If you can be uh, you know, fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful and focus on good long-term buys, some sound companies, I think even the cat would have to agree that that's the way to invest. Absolutely. And part of the reason that the cat potentially won is because of the way that the, the contest was formulated. That's true, yeah. Is because um, what they did was they gave each of the teams 5,000 pounds because they're British, so they wouldn't give them dollars. And uh, they were allowed to pick new stocks at the end of each quarter. Mm-hmm. So that meant that they were only investing in companies for a grand total of like three or four months at a time. Right. Which little little short term for us exactly. uh, here at the Motley Fool. Yeah, but again, we look down our very long noses at them. Right. But the cat the cat was a okay. We with it. have a perfect investing strategy. You feel good about that? I feel really good about good. that. I'm happy for you. <laughs> so um let's talk about Goldman Sachs. Let's yeah. Um Goldman Sachs there is a bank in China named Goldman Sachs, and it's not our Goldman Sachs. Mm. There's this guy in China who said, you know what? I'm going to start a bank, and I'm going to call it Goldman Sachs. Right. And, I mean, they've already released a statement saying that they have nothing to do with the real Goldman Sachs when someone called them out on it, but um, they haven't really said 
anything since. And Goldman Sachs is trying to get their name back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't heard that they've managed it so far. <laughs> no, they have not. Uh, and this is a pretty amazing story. Uh, it gets juicier. So, like you said, it was some guy decided to set up a Goldman Sachs bank uh, and and completely, you know, just randomly happened to pick the name Goldman Sachs. Same font that Goldman Sachs uses in all of their... Same Chinese characters. Same everything. <laughs> totally coincidental. Uh, what, what's really juicy is that the guy who's running this, uh, a guy named Chung Chi Tai, I'm sure I butchered that name, but the guy has allegedly has links to organized crime, and the bank itself was very close to Macau, where a lot of organized crime gets into gaming and the casinos over there. Uh, so the, the theory is that this bank was used to funnel funds to criminals, uh, which Goldman Sachs heard about and said, oh, that's not great for our image. Uh, what really blows me away, though, is that we're used to China as this place for counterfeits. You know, it's the world's workshop. A lot of counterfeits come from China simply because a lot of our products come from China. Uh, and so it's easier to to you know, jump in on the you know, on the good stuff, on the, on the money, on the products. Uh, but... You don't often hear about a bank. It's not something you can just build with your two hands and fake and sell on a storefront. It's someone had to go oh, out oh no. and set up. Well, yeah, that was the other story. There Somebody actually did set up a fake bank, a fake bank with fake tellers, fake ATM machines. And you could deposit money, but the trick was withdrawing it. Yeah, this is this, it's a whole new level. Uh, it's it's a whole new world of counterfeiting. I can't wait to see what we come up with next. It's going to be great human innovation at its finest. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of innovation, Goldman Sachs has hit upon a brilliant idea for hiring new employees. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to go after the best and the brightest, and they're doing that by using Snapchat stories. Um, Snapchat, for those of you who are not familiar with, with, with the application, mm-hmm. is um, an app developed that uh, lets you send pictures and videos, which will then be erased unless you know how to not erase them, which is, you just go online and Google it. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's very it's very popular amongst the young folks. Mm. Stodgy old conjurers <laughs> like us in our mid-20s really just don't understand this. No, I never use Snapchat. You've never used Snapchat? That's not true. I have. Okay. I Snapchatted a cat to someone once. That's always back to the oh, cats. Oh, and also there was a parrot on a motorcycle on U Street the other day. It was just it was like a, a green African parrot, and I felt the deep urge to share that with all my friends in a format that would not be uh, preserved forever. That is worth a snap mm. any day of the week and twice on Sunday. Yes. So Snapchat, you can send a video or a picture. It's only there for ten seconds, and then it's gone forever. Goldman Sachs hears that business model and says, "Oh yeah, let's advertise to kids that way." Uh, which, you know, we hear that and we kind of roll our eyes and we're making jokes. But in all seriousness, Snapchat, uh, I had pulled up the numbers on this. Uh, so according to Pew Research, 75% of teens have access to a smartphone. 91% of teens go online for mobile devices, at least occasionally. Uh, among those, 91%, 94% of those go online daily or more often. Snapchat is perfectly positioned to, to appeal to those people. Uh, back in 2014, 700 million photos were sent per day on Snapchat, uh, 500 million Snapchat stories. And Goldman Sachs looks at that and says, well, that's our market. That's our target demographic, getting kids as they come out of college. Especially because there's been research showing that a lot of people, younger people, aren't very interested in, to, in going into financial professions. It's I mean, stodgy. You make a hell of a lot of money, but it's not. Oh, it's brutal. I mean, Goldman, exactly. Actually, literally, Goldman Sachs back in June, um, they had to release 
uh, a memo to the company that got leaked that interns can't be at the Goldman Sachs offices between the hours of midnight and 7 a.m. Because so many interns were working themselves to exhaustion. So you hear that and you say, why the heck would I ever work at Goldman Sachs? And Goldman Sachs knows you're saying that as a recent or soon-to-be college graduate. They need to appeal somehow. Why not go to the biggest mobile platform in America right now, Snapchat? So it kind of makes sense. I don't know how much of a job description you can really get across in 10 seconds or less. Well, they're asking for, you know, like... Uh, crowdsourcing extraordinaire or whatever, people who are supposed to be dynamic and young and interesting and exciting. Very warm and fuzzy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But it's an investment bank, let's be real. Sure, sure. But if if you're Snapchat, you've got to be pleased as punch about this, though. You're you're raking in the big bucks, getting a big name like Goldman Sachs. It's only going to draw other big names to your brand. Um, I was reading about this. Snapchat is going to start pushing sponsored lenses, which are basically when you're taking a video, it's got like a little frame around it, and it can be sponsored by a company. Those are going for $450,000 a day to $750,000 on peak days, like holidays. That's or, crazy. Those are Super Bowl ad, halftime ad prices. This is 10 seconds. You're paying three-fourths of a million dollars on it. That's insane to me. But again, if you're if you're Snapchat, you got to be pleased as punch. Yeah, I wonder if they have the numbers on how many snaps get opened instead of just sitting. I open all my snaps. I always make it a point to check my snaps every morning uh, before breakfast. I wake up. I, uh, you read the financial news. Nope, I snap. And- <laughs> I, uh, I check my snap stories. Uh, if I want financial food news, I go straight to BuzzFeed, and then <laughs> I uh, and then I start my day, and then I give people financial advice. Trust me, I'm really good at my job. Okay, fair enough. On that note, um, thank you for joining us. I hope you liked this week's episode, whether you did or didn't like it. But especially if you did, write us at industryfocus at fool.com to let us know what you think. Um, Next week, we'll return to real banking news (laughs) with earnings analysis and John Maxfield. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks solely based on what you hear. 